Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown, and uh, in the Eagle's Nest in Vancouver is Matthew Stockton. Hello, Matthew. How are you today? I am good. Sorry for the delay in getting started today. I, I had to take <laughs> my cake out of the oven. You had to take your cake out of the oven. We had some technical difficulties because someone broke your cable that goes from the <laughs> mic to the computer. Steve decided that he needed to faff around a little bit. There's all <laughs> kinds of stuff going on down there. Lots of stuff. So after we're done, I'm going to eat said Victoria sponge cake in its entirety. You're a man after my own heart. <laughs> the views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor its parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work. Family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. The history of Chinese immigration to Canada is some rather dark poutine. As we explore this history, it's crucial to acknowledge these early immigrants' struggles. The Chinese laborers worked under grueling conditions on the railway, laying the tracks to unite Canada from coast to coast. However, their contributions were met with institutional discrimination most notably the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1923, which severely restricted Chinese immigration and separated families for decades. This period in history is a poignant reminder of the resilience and perseverance of the Chinese community, whose influence has since permeated every aspect of Canadian culture, from cuisine to politics. Today, as we reflect on the journey of Chinese immigrants into Canada, we celebrate the diversity and strength they have brought to the Canadian mosaic. It challenges us to confront the shadows of our past, acknowledging the pain and injustice that have stained our history. It compels us to work toward a future where everyone, regardless of their heritage, can be recognized, valued, and embraced as an integral part of the Canadian identity. It reminds us of the complexities and struggles of building a diverse and inclusive society. This is Dark Poutine, episode 297, Chinese Exclusion from Canada, part one, Enter the Dragon. In September 2015, during a heated debate on immigration and health care, then-Prime Minister Stephen Harper blew a dog whistle for his right-wing supporters. 
He said, We do not offer them a better health care plan than the ordinary Canadian can receive. I think that's something that both new and existing and old stock Canadians can agree with, end quote. This type of rhetoric is called a dog whistle because it's meant to be a critical message that a specific target audience will pick up on while being missed or ignored by others, like how dogs hear a frequency that we can't. However, most Canadians have pretty good BS detectors and heard this whistle loud and clear, which sparked a furious debate. From the CBC article, Stephen Harper's Old Stock Canadians, Politics of Division or Simple Slip? Question mark, quote, But if that was Harper's intention, a kind of secret wink-wink to those in the Tory fold, then at least judging by the reaction, he blew a dog whistle of the wrong frequency. The old stock Canadian's remark, instead of going unnoticed, immediately unleashed an onslaught of questions over what old stock meant, whether it had racist overtones and whether it was part of an overall conservative campaign to engage in identity politics or stoke fears against other groups. End quote. Old stock Canadians typically refer to those with white European ancestries whose families have resided in Canada for generations. It's often associated with English-speaking Canadians of British descent. So by this definition, I could be considered old stock. Um, Been here for generations, right? Been here for generations, early settlers. But of course... The words old stock aren't racist in themselves, like all words. It's the person it's coming from and the intent of the use. Yeah. The context creates the meaning, right? The term old stock sometimes generally encompasses both English-speaking and French-speaking Canadians from these old families. French-speaking Canadians who trace their ancestry back to early French settlers in New France before the British takeover of French Canada in 1763 are occasionally referred to as Québécois pure laine, which can be translated as dyed-in-the-wool and carries a similar connotation as old stock. However, it's crucial to remember that we all come from somewhere else. The story of humanity began in Africa, and everyone on this planet can trace their genetic lineage back to that origin. From the moment our species emerged, our ancestors traversed the globe, spreading across the continents. If we want to discuss who came here first, let's acknowledge the ancient stock of Canada, the First Nations, and the Inuit. Their roots run deep in this land, their presence dating back for thousands of years. From the CanadaGuide.com, quote, Most archaeologists believe the first peoples of Canada who belonged to what is sometimes called the Amerindian race migrated to Western North America from East Asia sometime between 21,000 and 10,000 BC, back when the two continents were connected by a massive land bridge known as the Bering Plain. In the centuries that followed, these peoples were spread all across the lands that now comprise Canada and the United States, forming hundreds of distinct communities across vast landscape. So the earliest settlers of North America arrived sometime between 12,000 and 23,000 years ago. On the other hand, European settlers are relatively recent to North America. They ventured here during the 10th and 11th centuries. Vikings, led by Leif Erikson, established a settlement in Newfoundland around the year 1000. John Cabot, an Italian sailing under the British flag, explored the eastern coast of present-day Canada in 1497 while Jacques Cartier claimed the land for France in the 16th century. But let's focus on the narrative of Chinese immigration to Canada, as that is the essence of this episode. It's a narrative intertwined with the fabric of Western Canada, where people from China have played an integral role in the community, infrastructure, and culture for generations. They're not all newcomers. They truly are a part of the tapestry of of Canadian society. They they really are, and and I hope this this episode um, helps to educate and give a little bit more of a history to people. Mm-hmm. In fact, if it wasn't for Chinese immigration to Western Canada, there would probably be no British Columbia. It would most likely be part of the United States. The Chinese immigrants literally helped Canada become Canada from coast to mm-hmm. coast, and you'll get to that. The earliest Chinese immigration can be traced all the way back to the 1780s to a settlement of 120 Chinese people in Nootka Sound. Back in 1788, around 120 Chinese contract laborers packed their bags and headed to Nootka Sound on Vancouver Island all the way from Guangzhou and Macau. 
This recruitment mission was spearheaded by a fur trader named John Mears, who had big plans to set up a trading post and promote the trading of sea otter pelts between Nootka and Canton in China. These sailors and artisans from Canton and Macau had a crucial role to play in building the infrastructure of Nootka Sound, including a dockyard and a fort. Regarding this journey and the future prospects of Chinese settlement in colonial North America, Mears wrote in his book Voyages Made in the Years 1788 and 1799 from China to the Northwest Coast of America. Quote, the Chinese were, on this occasion, shipped as an experiment. They have generally been esteemed as hardy and industrious, as well as the indigenous race of people. They live on fish and rice and requiring low wages, it was actually not a matter also of economical consideration to employing them. And during the whole of the voyage, there was every reason to be satisfied with their services. If trading posts should be established on the American coast, a colony of these men would be a very valuable acquisition. End quote. While there was a certain level of respect for this people, there is also a transactional aspect the Chinese were considered industrious, but also a source of cheap labor. The view of them primarily as a source of cheap labor to be rejected when they weren't needed would persist for decades. The settlement of Chinese immigrants at Nootka Sound in the late 18th century holds a unique place in Canadian history. The Nootka Sound settlement serves as a reminder of the early contributions and presence of Chinese immigrants in Canada highlighting their diverse origins and roles in shaping the country's history. Their experiences at Nootka Sound set the stage for future waves of Chinese immigrants who would significantly impact various aspects of Canadian society in the years to come. The first, more significant wave of Chinese immigration started when we realized that there was gold in them in our hills. The Fraser Canyon Gold Rush started as a trickle in the early 1850s and then turned into a tidal wave of people from around the world arriving to hit the jackpot. Many of these people were of Chinese descent, some coming to Canada from California and others directly from China. Barkerville, located in the Caribou region of BC, is often said to be Canada's first settled Chinese community, where at one point more than half the town's population was of Chinese descent. The Chinese immigrants proved to be very good miners. The proficiency and methods of Chinese miners surpassed those of the others. They utilized advanced hydraulic mining techniques, including rockers, and a special process where blankets filtered alluvial sand before being incinerated, causing the gold to fuse into nuggets within the flames. Even after the rush had moved to the Caribou and other locations in British Columbia or the United States, Chinese miners remained in the Fraser Canyon. They persisted in their hydraulic mining endeavors and agriculture, establishing predominant land ownership in both the Fraser and Thompson Canyons well into the future. These Chinese immigrants were pivotal in the development of the region. Mining, farming land, building towns, opening shops and other businesses, paying taxes and populating a sparse land. Everything a place could ever want in its immigrants. By 1860, the people of Chinese descent represented approximately 13% of the population in our province. During this time, Britain decided that the West Coast needed to be theirs. In 1858, British Columbia became a British Crown colony and was indeed then named British Columbia. Up until then, the western shores of what is now Canada didn't hold a lot of interest to Britain. It was so far away from London, and they had a global empire to worry about not some backwater on the Pacific coast of a frontier land. But now there was gold to be had, and it piqued their interest, to say the least. With this new interest in British Columbia, the British wanted to make the population, well, more British. It wasn't just a whim, it was a strategic move in the name of the empire. During this period, Americans were eyeing up the land to claim it for themselves as another state. They had set up forts in what is now Washington and violently suppressed the indigenous people who refused to surrender their land. And once that was done, they started looking north. From the Canadian Encyclopedia, quote, In 1859, the so-called Pig War on San Juan Island, near the Vancouver Island capital of Victoria, gave the military commander south of the border the opening he sought. 
He sent in his forces and reported optimistically to the commander-in-chief of the U.S. Army, the population of British Columbia is largely American and foreigners. Comparatively few persons from the British Isles emigrate to this region. The English cannot colonize successfully so near our people. They are too exacting. This, with the pressing necessities of our commerce on this coast, will induce them to yield, eventually, Vancouver's Island to our government. It is as important to the Pacific states as Cuba to those on the Atlantic. I guess Cuba didn't work out in their favor either, so, oh well. The white people north of the border were split, to become American or to remain British. After a lot of debate and even more shenanigans, eventually the loyalists to the British won out. They decided they would join the Confederation with the rest of Canada in 1871 under the condition that a railway be started within 10 years and make it easier to have a trade route with the rest of Canada and for people of British descent to make their way to colonize the province. But this was 1871. A wild frontier, a vast landmass with these pesky little things called the Rocky Mountains in the way. Building a railway to the Pacific would be a massive and hugely dangerous project and a very, very, very expensive one. Sir John A. Macdonald, Canada's first Prime Minister, and other investors in the Canadian Pacific Railway had a solution. The Chinese immigrants, who had proven so industrious and inexpensive during the mining boom, could be used to build the railway along with other people of Chinese descent who would be hired from California and China. One of the key opposition groups to this plan was a group called the Working Men's Protective Association, and it was led by a man named Noah Shakespeare, who was born and raised in Stratfordshire, England, and emigrated to British Columbia a meager 10 years before he formed the group. Their stated goal was, quote, the mutual protection of working classes of British Columbia against the great influx of Chinese to use all legitimate means for the suppression of their immigration, to assist each other in obtaining of employment, and to devise means for the amelioration of the condition of the working classes of the province in general. End quote. Wow, what a tool. <laughs> so... This guy was 10, ten years in, he, right. he was only here for 10 years at this time, right? So a bunch of white folks, all relatively new to the land, wanting to stop Chinese people specifically from joining in on the opportunities that the new province provided. Right. Of course, it was a different time, and people were eking out their lives in quite a wild land. Yeah, mm -hmm. but the, uh, they, the uh, and there was a lot. There's a lot to be said about um, building of empire as well in intent, uh, but I just kind of laughed when I when I was looking at uh, re writing this because the, that that they took our jobs refrain that was hilariously immortalized in South Park was an excuse then uh, excuse then as it is now for racism. Yeah, but it wasn't just working men's groups, but the provincial government of British Columbia itself who participated in trying to marginalize the Chinese. By 1871, British Columbia was considered to have supposedly achieved representative and responsible government. However, this system failed to include many communities and individuals, particularly women and ethnic minorities, in the political decision-making process. At the time, the province of British Columbia consisted of approximately 25,660 indigenous people, 8,500 white residents, 1,500 Chinese people, and 500 black residents. Despite their significant presence, indigenous and Chinese people faced intentional exclusion from participating in provincial elections. Interestingly, unlike the United States, black men were not excluded from voting. In 1872, the Legislative Assembly passed the Qualification and Registration of Voters Act, which solidified the disenfranchisement of indigenous and Chinese communities. The act specifically targeted these groups. Chinese residents were targeted due to fears that they would dominate the job market by accepting lower wages and taking on challenging and demanding positions that white workers may not be willing to fill. Well, that sounds familiar. By systematically disenfranchising entire ethnic communities, the government sought to assert control over who could engage in the political process and influence the direction of the province. The province was ramping up for Chinese exclusion, but the feds had a different approach. 
driven, as we will see later in this podcast, not by fairness and equality, but by keeping the railway building on track, pun intended, and on a budget. After much debate, over 10 years between the provinces and the feds, the Prime Minister came down hard with a speech in Parliament in 1882, demanding costs be cut by using Chinese workers. He said, quote, It is simply a question of alternatives. Either you must have these workers or you can't have the railway. That was the final word from Ottawa as recruitment of Chinese workers went into full force. And we'll take a break right here. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Angered by the push from Ottawa, the white male population of Victoria voted the head of the Working Men's Protective Association that we mentioned earlier, Noah Shakespeare, in as the mayor of the city. This was a solid retort to Ottawa, starting his political career. He'll come up again. The section of the railway that was to be built went from Vancouver across the province and through the Rocky Mountains and into Alberta. This was the most dangerous part of the railway, Scorching heat in the summer, freezing cold in winter, rock slides, difficult winding paths through the mountains, and the use of many explosives. An American man named Andrew Onderdonk had been hired as the lead contractor to build the railway. Onderdonk is estimated to have brought approximately 6,500 Chinese workers from China and more from California. The total estimated number is around 17,000. These workers were segregated from white workers often assigned the most dangerous tasks, including tunnel blasting using highly unstable nitroglycerin explosives or working on steep slopes leading to a high rate of accidents and fatalities. One of the most tragic and specific examples of the loss of life among Chinese railway workers in Western Canada occurred during the construction of the CPR in the 1880s. In particular, the construction of the treacherous section through the Fraser Canyon in B.C. stands out. This area was notorious for its dangerous working conditions, characterized by steep rocky terrain and unpredictable weather. The most poignant incident happened in the winter of 1880 near Yale, British Columbia. A group of Chinese workers cleared a particularly hazardous stretch known as the Hell's Gate section. They had to carve a pathway through solid rock using explosives, and during one such operation, a premature explosion occurred, killing several workers instantly. Reports from that time vary, but it's believed that at least a dozen workers lost their lives in this single incident. These deaths were part of a larger pattern of peril and tragedy that Chinese laborers faced while building the CPR. Not only did many Chinese workers lose their lives in accidents, but a significant number also succumbed to scurvy during the winter. Scurvy was prevalent due to their diet heavily reliant on rice, as they received rice mats as part of their pay but had little cash to purchase necessary food supplements. Unlike white workers, injured Chinese workers were not provided access to the company hospital and had to rely on the assistance of their fellow workers. Here at Dark Poutine, Matthew and I try to focus on the victims, their lives, and their stories, but records weren't kept about how many died, let alone what these people's names were. We guess the powers that be didn't care enough about the lives to ensure they kept a tally or even wrote down their names. Different sources give different numbers, ranging from 700 to 4,000 who died. Many of these deceased workers were often buried in unmarked graves near the railway line, where they still lay today in anonymity. On the CBC Learning website, it was put this way, quote, One worker died for every mile of track lay through the Rocky Mountains between Calgary and Vancouver, end quote. You'd think the end of the railway construction in 1885 would be a day of celebration, a day to thank those who worked so hard and risked their lives on the railway. Well, it wasn't. 
Canadian listeners might be familiar with the famous last spike photo of Lord Strathcona driving the last spike into the railway surrounded by many men. It was a propaganda image we've seen for years now about how our great nation was built. Look at it again now, understanding how the railway was built, and you see a noticeable absence of any Chinese faces in the photo. However, being invited to the photo op was the least of the Chinese workers' worries at this point. At the end of construction, the Chinese workers were simply abandoned by the side of the tracks, leaving thousands stranded and living in caves without food and water in the desert heat surrounding Spences Bridge. They could not leave the area until charities in Vancouver managed to get them out, and some went back to China or down to California. Some stayed in British Columbia or traveled to other parts of Canada to settle. Yeah, so let's be clear here. The contractor, the railway, the Canadian government thought so little of these people Mm -hmm. that they just left them at the side of the tracks in the middle of nowhere to starve to death. Yeah, it's terrible. They weren't people, they were equipment, essentially. Yep. Somehow, this cruel treatment of these people who connected B.C. to the rest of Canada was not harsh enough for the anti-Chinese Canadians. The year before the final spike was driven, anti-immigration sentiment in British Columbia, specifically toward Chinese immigrants, was alarmingly strong. A royal commission was established to gather evidence supporting restrictions on Chinese immigration, citing the best interests of Canada as the primary motive. Prime Minister Sir John A. Macdonald initially hesitated to implement measures to curb Chinese immigration. However, due to the prevailing sentiment, he viewed the commission as a means to address the issue. The Royal Commission on Chinese Immigration was created on July 4, 1884, following Macdonald's order. The commission consisted of Joseph Adolphe Chaplot, the former Premier of Quebec and a member of Parliament and the Secretary of State of Canada, and John Hamilton Gray, the former Premier of the Colony of New Brunswick and former member of Parliament and currently a member of the Supreme Court of British Columbia. During the inquiry, the commissioners interviewed 51 witnesses who provided testimonies and answered 27 questions related to Chinese immigrants, the actions to be taken regarding them, and the need for restrictions. The majority of the witnesses presented negative testimonies against the Chinese immigrants. For example, while 20 witnesses acknowledged the Chinese immigrants' contributions to the province's development, 10 others emphasized their negative impact. The commission primarily interviewed individuals in Victoria, with a few from Nanaimo and New Westminster. Critics argued that this skewed the report, as they believed it was in the countryside where the Chinese men were perceived to be taking jobs rather than in the cities. The commission also discovered that there were 157 Chinese women in British Columbia, compared to 10,335 Chinese men. Additionally, the Commission examined the immigration policies of other countries, including the American Chinese Exclusion Act, the New Zealand Immigration Policy, and Australian Policy, all of which had their own taxes on Chinese immigrants. The Commission submitted its final report, which concluded that there was, quote, little evidence to support claims against Chinese immigration, end quote. The commissioners asserted that discriminatory standards had unfairly judged the Chinese. Despite the lack of evidence of any threat posed by Chinese immigration, the report still recommended moderate legislation to restrict immigration. The commission found three categories of opinions on Chinese immigrants. It would state, quote, 1. Of a well-meaning but strongly prejudiced minority whom nothing but absolute exclusion will satisfy. 2 an intelligent minority who conceived that no legislation, whatever, is necessary, that, as in all business transactions, the rule of supply and demand will apply and the matter regulate itself in the ordinary course of events, or three, of a large majority who think there should be moderate restriction based upon police, financial, and sanitary principles, sustained and enforced by stringent local regulations for cleanliness and the preservation of health, End quote. Only a small minority felt that no legislation was needed. Rather than advocating for an outright ban on Chinese immigration, the commission recommended a $10 head tax as the best option. The commission found that the average Chinese laborer earned $300 per year and saved $43 per year, almost a quarter of their savings, being paid as a poll tax 
would help to slow immigration and get some people to leave. In 1884, British Columbia implemented the $10 annual poll tax on Chinese immigrants. This is where a fascinating man named Chu Lei, known to the public as Wing Chong, comes in. I love this dude. Me too. Lei was born in 1847 in Panyu County in the Guangdong province of China. He immigrated to British Columbia in the 1860s as a young man with big dreams. It has to be noted here that he arrived in B.C. around the same year that Noah Shakespeare did. Over the next 20 years, he built a profitable business called Wing Chong. He started by trading caribou, had a general store, imported Chinese goods, and made clothes. By the time he died, he was worth $500,000, which is the equivalent to around $15 million today. In 1885, a year into the B.C. provincial head tax, he was charged for refusing to pay the $10. He obviously could afford it. He refused to pay as a matter of principle and as an act of defiance against the racist policy. Instead, he paid a $250 bond and appealed to the Supreme Court of British Columbia. Mr. Justice Henry Pering Pellew Crease, oh boy, <laughs> ruled that the act was ultra veras of the province. Ultra veras is Latin for beyond the powers. The judge didn't make a judgment about the unfairness of the law. Instead, Lay won through a technicality that the law was beyond the province's powers and should not have been implemented. Yeah, it's uh, a, a little side note about this about this fascinating guy. Um, through the rest of his life, he remained an activist while managing his business. Mm -hmm. He funded the first Chinese language school in Canada. He was one of the first few parents to put uh, their children into the Victoria public school system, protesting attempts of the province to force children of Chinese heritage into segregated schools. Yes, they tried to do that as well, segregation. He was also uh, active in the Chinese Empire Reform Association. It, that was a group of uh, that was trying to get China to become a constitutional monarchy. And if if you're listening and you don't know what a constitutional monarchy is, if you're Canadian, you're living in one. <laughs> right. So, yeah. So at, at the time of his death in 1906, his oldest son was studying at Cambridge University in the UK. After the Ultravera's ruling. The province entered an appeal with the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, but did not proceed with it. They didn't proceed with it for a reason. The British Columbia establishment was unhappy with a $10 annual head tax, but not because they didn't want it. They thought it was too lenient. On March 6, 1885, a public meeting took place in Victoria, intended by the mayor and local members of parliament to push for stronger actions against Chinese immigration. A local MP referred to as Mr. Duck presented a resolution at the public meeting calling for the exclusion of Chinese immigrants entirely. He said, quote, Whereas the action of the commissioners, Mr. Chaplot and Gray, appointed to inquire into the Chinese question, has to a great extent failed to recommend such measures as would be calculated to remedy the evil effects of the presence of Chinese in our midst, and if their recommendations were to be wholly acted on by the government of Canada, it would necessarily fail to accomplish the object desired. End quote. This resolution gained significant support from the attendees. A similar meeting was held in Toronto where someone named J.W. Rooney, we aren't sure of his role, said, quote, The advent of a large number of Chinese under prior contract and as semi-slaves is, in itself, contrary to the spirit of our freedom, that they are a menace to the morality of this Christian country, are agnostic to the interests of the country as a whole, and their competition as slaves in the labor market is detrimental to the welfare of the working people of Canada, end quote. In response to this growing pressure, the Canadian government decided to take a more restrictive approach toward Chinese immigration. Noah Shakespeare, who started as the head of the Workmen's Protective Association and then mayor of Victoria, had worked his way up the political ladder and was now a Conservative MP from Victoria in the heart of Parliament in Ottawa. He tabled the Electoral Franchise Act. On July 20, 1885, the Electoral Franchise Act was passed by the Parliament of Canada. This act imposed a $50 head tax on every Chinese immigrant entering Canada, making it around $10 more than the average Chinese person would be able to save per year. 
It only targeted Chinese immigrants to Canada. This was never done before and has never been done since. The Franchise Act also introduced several other measures to restrict Chinese immigration. It required every Chinese person entering Canada to pay the head tax, register, and obtain a certificate of registration. They had to carry this certificate at all times. Failure to comply with these regulations could result in deportation. The act also prohibited Chinese immigrants from voting in federal elections, working in the public service, and becoming naturalized Canadian citizens. It further reinforced the notion of Chinese immigrants as undesirable and perpetuated discriminatory attitudes and practices against them. From a paper by Timothy Stanley on University of Toronto Online Library called John A. Macdonald, The Chinese and the Racist State Formation in Canada, quote, In 1885, John Alexander Macdonald took the right to vote away from the men racialized as Chinese on the grounds that they were biologically different from Canadians and that their presence threatened the Aryan character of Canadian society. The paper continues explaining that through the 1885 Electoral Franchise Act, MacDonald aimed to strengthen colonial control over Western territories by shaping the federal government to center around private property owners. In Canada, the pattern of colonialism echoed that of other regions, characterized by the seizure of indigenous territories and the imposition of European-style private land ownership. This move entrenched land ownership as a criterion for political participation, a stance reflected in MacDonald's initial support of both women's suffrage and the enfranchisement of indigenous landowners. To MacDonald, owning land was tantamount to demonstrating one's integration into the colonial societal framework. However, the ascent of Chinese land ownership in British Columbia presented a challenge to European control. In response, discriminatory practices were codified, leveraging alleged innate racial differences to justify exclusion. The 1885 legislation was the critical juncture in the formalization of systemic racism in Canada. The intense objection to this biological determinism, including from MacDonald's own political allies, underscores the magnitude of this ideological shift one that would deeply affect racialized and marginalized communities in Canada for generations. The tax was initially set at $50, but was later raised to $100 and then to $500 in 1903. As Canada's economy expanded and created more opportunities for many people, the $500 entrance fee introduced to limit Chinese immigration proved to be an ineffective measure. The widespread anti-Chinese sentiment and entrenched racism in society went unsatisfied. There was a national uproar demanding a complete halt to Chinese immigration. This outcry began in British Columbia, but quickly spread fueled by prejudice. People unfairly accused Chinese immigrants of taking jobs, posing a danger to society, lacking moral values, spreading illness, and undermining the British Empire's influence. By 1923, a much harsher act of Parliament would descend like a heavy, suffocating fog, one that would obliterate any semblance of fairness, any shred of compassion, one that would rip apart families' dreams and hopes that would and would replace them with a regime of exclusion and segregation. July 1st, 1923, would become known as Humiliation Day to Chinese Canadians. In next week's episode... We will cover this day and its negative consequences. So next week, we'll be talking about the 100th anniversary of that particular day, Humiliation Day. And thank you to Matthew for writing these two episodes. They are fascinating. You did a lot of homework and that kind of oh. stuff, which we'll, <laughs> which we will talk about in the next episode. Yeah, it's, um, I wanted to do this right. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and as I got into it, it just, I just, I went down a rabbit hole and got deeper and deeper and deeper do, doing the research and trying to tell the story to the best of my ability. I made, uh, obviously some edits and added a few little things, but Matthew did the heavy lifting on this episode and, uh, you know, I had to remove the Matthewisms. <laughs> <laughs> Because cause when if I was to say them, people would say, what? Did Mike hit his head this morning? Something, something doesn't make sense. <laughs> but that's fine. That's just fine. I use big words. <laughs> sometimes, and sometimes you say, you say very, very, and yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah, good work. Thank you. Thank you.
That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. Take a listen to our first voicemail. Hi, my name is Alice. I'm a longtime listener, almost since the start. Uh, I'm just calling in reference to the Black Friday Siege episode. Uh, really, really well done. I find it a super fascinating case. Um, but specifically, I wanted to address uh, the discussion that you guys were having about um, all cops are bastards and why, aren't, why don't we see more of positive stuff about the police and the media. Um, I actually learned very young that, um, well, I was influenced very young to move into the defund the police, all cops are bastards sort of side. Um, and I learned that pretty explicitly from my dad, who was a highly decorated police officer with over 30 years of um, service uh, until he died. Um, not directly as a result of policing, but probably 30 years doing undercover work with organized crime and to, you know, investigating homicides will definitely exacerbate any alcoholism that you're dealing with. Um, he taught us when we were young that just because somebody is wearing a police uniform doesn't inherently make them a good person. And as a matter of fact, he said he knew a lot, a lot of very bad people who were police officers. And he tried very hard to kind of make up for that. Um, he also taught us um, that just because he'd arrested someone didn't make them a bad person. And we had relationships. Um, as a family with a lot of the people that he had arrested and their families. Um, as far as the all cops are bastards thing, I think that that's less a personal thing and more of a systemic thing. Um, policing in Canada started out exclusively um, to hunt down and, and kind of control Indigenous people. And any system that's built on that really can't do anything good. Like, it, it really can't. It's, it's the, what was it, something of a poison, the fruit of the poison tree. Um, do we need an investigative service? Absolutely. Do we need security people to help keep marginalized people safe? Absolutely. Um, does somebody with a gun need to pull me over for going 10 kilometers an hour over the speed limit? Really not. Uh, so that's, I think, where that's kind of coming from. Also, real quick, the positive stuff is always highly publicized by police PR and is always in local newspapers. Like, so much. I have so many clips, like, uh, clippings of my dad's stuff. Uh, even still, and he's been dead for over 20 years. So, yeah. Anyways, um, do not go shit in your hat. And also, I hope I didn't say anything, like, real shitty, so I don't want to go shit in my hat. But um, <laughs> thanks. Bye. <laughs> That's a really interesting take on that. Yeah, and, and I actually think, uh, you know, some of my thinking is aligned uh, with the callers uh, in a lot of ways. It's Yeah, I don't I don't align fully with that, but yeah. But, but other things, like, you know, I lived in the UK for years. They don't need guns to pull you over, no. They don't need guns, and 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 that all of that stuff is, um, yeah. I that that those bits I agree. You, you know me, Mike. I'm a bit of a minarchist, so I like to reduce things uh, to um, for us to be left alone as much as possible. It just got me thinking about maybe doing another episode about this stuff. But yeah. anyway, and it's also great to hear, you know, like her dad is teaching her that there's a lot of bad cops, but he was a good cop teaching her that. And that was, that was my point, you know, mm -hmm. that, uh, that there are a lot of, uh, and uh, this includes some of my relatives, a lot of good people that take the yep. job seriously and want to help and protect. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. The system is a mess, but yes, exactly. All right. Let's move on to our second voicemail. And no, you didn't say anything shitty, by the way, you did not. Anyway, let's move on to our second voicemail. Hi, Mike. Hi, Matthew. My name is Lindsay Hart, and I just listened to the Black Friday Siege episode, so that's why I'm calling. Mike, I met you at the Rio Theater a few years ago when you came to see An Evening with Bret Hart, who is my uncle. And if you had a picture taken with him, I was most likely the person who took it. Anyways, I had never, long-time listener, I've, you gave us tickets to your show for the next night, and I've been a listener ever since. It was your live taping, and we came, and I've listened to you ever since. I love the show with Matthew. It's even better than it's ever been. Matthew's so funny. Anyways, native Calgarian. I live in Vancouver now. I have never heard this story. I grew up in Calgary. I was born in the 80s. The Hart family has roots in Ramsey, and no one has ever mentioned this. I've never heard it. It was completely fascinating. 
I can't stop thinking about it. I'm going to call up my mom, my aunt, and make them tell me details on this because it's such a crazy story. And Calgary feels like a small town in a big city. It's a very friendly city where everyone knows each other. Everyone says hi. So thinking about this happening there is mind-blowing to me. And listening to this episode, it definitely choked me up as well, probably because I'm from Calgary, but specifically when you had mentioned how the police officer's funeral, how 200 plus people came, it really struck a tone with me because my family specifically has experienced this and felt the love and the warmth and the generosity that the citizens of Calgary have feel towards their own people, their their own. So um, it was definitely emotional for me to listen to. And the story really humanized the police officers. So it, I just really enjoyed listening to it as a native Calgarian, uh, now Vancouverite. Uh, left. Too cold there for me. But anyways, I really love the story. And thank you so much for telling it. Uh, Take a shit in your hat. Thanks, boys. (laughs) Oh, good stuff. Uh, Yes, I do remember you. That was very nice of you to take the picture that you did of me and the other fella with uh, your (laughs) with Bret Hart. I was so excited to meet him. He uh, he was on uh, before we were doing setup for our show, and um, he said, "Oh yeah, you guys can have the cheese plate that <laughs> the cheese and fruit plate that's in my dressing room." So uh, we ate Bret Hart's cheese and fruit. Who, who's, oh, who's, who's Bret Hart? Thing Matthew. Uh, I don't know if you ever watched a WWF wrestling. It was WWF at the time, right? He's the Brett the Hitman Hart, and the Hart family is uh, a huge in professional wrestling from Calgary. They have a giant house there where they trained all kinds of different wrestlers over the years. It's uh, it's really cool. Anyway, but uh, thank you so much, and I- I'm glad that uh, the free tickets lured you in <laughs> to the show. That's so funny. Back when you needed to give them away for free. I would. I still do. I would still give things away for free because I don't see why not. We just want people to enjoy the show. Enjoy the show, exactly. Enjoy the show. All right, let's move on. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one eight seven seven three two seven five seven eight six or one eight seven seven D A R K P T N. We'd love to hear from you even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. Alrighty, it's time for Patreon and Donut Money donors, and we have a couple of patrons this week. Yay! First up, from Davenport, Florida, we have Brenda Wenziger. Brenda Wenziger. What does Brenda do there in Davenport, Florida, Matthew? Davenport sounds like a place that would have a lot of private investigators, so I think she's a PI. A a PI? Interesting. Has she done some really interesting stuff while being a PI? I'm just kind of curious. She usually gets spouses trying to prove that their their partners are cheating on them. Um, You know, but, you know, that's her bread and butter, and she takes the money, right? Uh, But, you know, she's she's trying to work into financial fraud and stuff like that as well. So our next patron is a dude named Monty Coyle, but I don't know where Monty's from. Okay. With a name like Monty Coyle, he has to be from Hollywood. Yep. And I think he is a game show host. Oh, well, there you go. And the game show is kind of like a cross between, uh, that Korean show squid game with, the prices with the yep. prices right. Oh, weird. <laughs> so if you don't get the price correct, you're killed. Can't you picture it? I'd watch that show. Oh no, the price is wrong. <laughs> the price is wrong. <laughs> or a trap door opens. It's always creative ways that you you die. You're immolated by a flamethrower or something. <laughs> what a terrible show. I don't want to go on that show. 
and get the price wrong? If you get the price wrong and it's for a car, then the car mows you down. <laughs> oh, God. Help us all. <laughs> anyway, uh, well, there you go. Well, thank you, Monty Coyle. <laughs> we have Donut Money donors, but you'll have to listen for next week to hear your names because we don't have enough patrons for next week. And uh, pulling the curtain back, we're recording two episodes in one day. So, yeah, next week. You'll hear about your we want to sp- your PayPal. We want to spread it out like a thick jam. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Thanks to all our patrons and donut money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash dark poutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. And that is it for this episode of Dark Poutine. So until next time, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye. Bye. Bye.